With a 50% obesity rate in the U.S. and more unhealthy people than ever before, it is time to make America healthy. Welcome to Make America Healthy with Beth Shaw. If you're feeling tired, toxic, heavy, slow, or stressed, then keep listening. Beth and her expert guests are here to offer practical advice and share the tools you need to reclaim your physical, mental, and emotional health. Now, here is your host, Beth Shaw. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Make America Healthy. I have been so looking forward to this episode. We are very blessed with two special guests and a lot of information. So buckle your seatbelt if it still fits you, because we're going to be talking with Dr. Pam Peak, who is a scientist and a weight loss expert. She's written five New York Times bestselling books, including The Hunger Fix, which is about food addiction. And we also have Frances Cuffel, an author with us, who wrote a book about losing half of her own body weight, and then another book about gaining 100 pounds of it back again. So Pam, I am thrilled to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, you and I spoke at the beginning of the pandemic, and you said we're going to be slammed in this country because we have so many obese people. Uh, where are we at today with that? Hi, Beth, and it's a it's a great pleasure to be on the show with you today. Um, as you know, I'm a physician um, and a scientist, a clinical scientist, and a, also a former uh, Pew Foundation scholar in nutrition and metabolism. Um, and so I've spent many years looking at this whole issue of uh, lifestyle medicine, integrative medicine, and um, key to that is, you know, how our own lifestyle and our own environment um, affects us in, in a big way. Uh, and in this case, um, it involves um, our health as it relates to our body composition. I don't really say body weight, it's body composition. Um, and that means the amount of muscle and, and fat we carry on our bodies. And obviously bones are thrown in there. So uh, I don't think anyone would be surprised to know uh, that in the United States um, and also other countries, but we'll stick with the USA right now, that uh, we have a, an overall prevalence of obesity that it's uh, projected um, to increase from, well, let's look back at 1992 from 12% obesity to 41% uh, in men. And uh, from, interestingly, uh, those statistics were men, 12% in 1992 to 41% in men in 2022. But for women, they were already up to 21% in 1992. They are now at 78% in women. And so this is a a very large change. And if we just sort of go forward for a minute, since we're in the wonderful world of statistics, um, it's, it's estimated that by uh, the year 2025, which is just right around the corner, 64% um, of the entire population will be either overweight or obese um, compared to 54%. So that's up 10%. Um, since the year 2000, 
and uh, it is estimated then that by the year 2030, almost half of the adult population in the United States uh, will be obese. And that means they have a body mass index of 30 um, to 35. What's also striking here is um, severe obesity, um, which means a minimum of 100 pounds um, and over, um, has a really high growth rates, uh, rising um, from 3.1% of the population in the year 2000 uh, to 4.5% in 2012 and to 6.1% in 2025. Now, I, I kind of threw a lot of numbers at you, but I think it was really important to just look at the trending over time um, if you're just simply looking at what's happening to the overall population. Does that make sense, Beth? Yeah, of course it does. And it's certainly not going in the right direction. In fact, I think it's safe to say the ship is sinking. Well, you know, let's let's sort of, I gave you a lot of numbers. I have a master's in epidemiology also, so I like numbers. Um, let's step back for a second uh, and, and realize that just a huge... Um, uh, global change took place uh, a couple of years ago, and that was the pandemic. So you had a pandemic uh, really uh, colliding with an epidemic um, of obesity, uh, and nothing good could come out of this um, because really, uh, in many respects, uh, you had now a population that was already stressed and struggling that was now going to be locked down and, and going through so many other uh, trials and, and tribulations. And so what we found coming out of the pandemic was that if you were overweight, uh, meaning that your BMI was somewhere between 25 and 29 or so, um, some people now just call that sort of pre-obesity or whatever, um, that you actually ended up putting on 25 to 29 pounds and that if you were obese to start with, meaning that you had an absolute minimum of 50 pounds over whatever the numbers are uh, for norms, um, that you actually gained upwards of another 50 pounds. So the pandemic didn't do us any favors here. Uh, and I think it also laid open um, the, the vulnerability of people who have um, uh, a body composition that reflects much more fat, um, which is also unfortunate because it lays down the foundation for um, increased inflammation throughout the body. And when that occurs, um, that made a viral um, infection much more, much easier to take place. And so uh, this population was much more vulnerable. Um, and so we saw much more morbidity, mortality um, as it related to that. But just on the overall, you know, pandemic aside, uh, it really speaks to the fact that our culture and our environment is, is just so uh, obesogenic um, and it makes it so much easier not to take uh, care of yourself and not to really have that as front and center. And to, I mean, this is such a complex issue. 
But, you know, let's look at another aspect, and that is that the, the typical answer to try to help someone over many, many decades was ridiculous. It was calories in, calories out, which we now know as experts. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, will not, you know, tolerate anymore. It's so much more complex than that. It's, it's just so many variables affecting this. But unfortunately, so many people got caught up in that web of dropping weight, gaining weight, dropping weight, gaining weight, because what they were offered were just crazy things like starving yourself um, and eating strange synthetic foods, um, not cooking. And so people ended up putting on a lot of weight in rebound. And when they did that, it's very difficult to get it off again, um, especially if you've gained a lot of weight. And so uh, people just got caught up in this terrible web. Um, and then there's the finger pointing and the judging and the what's wrong with you, you know, just stop eating and, and whatever. We, anyone with half an ounce of brains now knows you don't say that. It's you, you have to offer ways to be able to help people so that what you have more than anything else is uh, a pathway to at least becoming healthier. Um, and no one's asking anyone to drop a hundred pounds, you know, overnight and, and somehow feel healthy. Um, we already, we already saw the fiasco from the biggest loser. Um, instead, where is the more compassionate, way to look at this and to be able to offer people an environment within which they can uh, take steps to at least go in the right direction, feel better, because if nothing is done, we already know in medicine that the chance of picking up diabetes type 2 is much higher and, and so many other issues, including um, just plain impaired mobility, et cetera. So we have to start looking at this as uh, a, a condition that really needs to be addressed at multiple levels and, and to just discard the silliness, um, the draconian ways that were offered to people in the past. Does that make sense, Beth? Of course it does. And, you know, I mean, we're offering options to people like, uh, you know, stomach stapling and gastric bypass and uh, all kinds of pills and potions. You know, we all know that the diet industry is a billion dollar industry, but let's dial it back to education. I mean, my question for a very long time has always been, why aren't we educating people in school how to take care of their bodies? You know, we're teaching people algebra and, and trigonometry, and, and but we're not teaching people the basics of how to care for the body that they're in. Um, school fitness programs have been greatly reduced, physical fitness. Clearly, we're not teaching yoga and meditation in all schools. Uh, so people don't need, you know, they don't know how to deal with their stress levels. So a lot of stress eating uh, ensues from that. But why, you know, my question would be truly if we cared about people's health, if we really cared about Americans' health, we would change our education system right away. And 
uh, it seems like nobody makes any money off of healthy people. You know, if you follow the money trail, it doesn't, it doesn't add up to why they would want anyone to be healthy. Um, and for the people who take it on on their own, and I've seen because I work with a lot of people through our Yogalene weight loss transformation groups, I've seen people just pick up my book and lose 65 pounds because they've implemented the protocol. Um, and it's not that difficult to do. It's just, you know, following the Yogalene steps. But again, I, I don't understand why we're not enforcing better education, uh, starting with children to teach them about their health. Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, you know, uh, there's no question about that, but here's the deal. Where are the mentors, you know, are the teachers practicing this when they're, when they're actually teaching this, are, are they saying to the kids, Hey, just this morning, I took a nice long walk, um, with my dog and it was way too much fun. And I was out in the park and it was fabulous. Well, many schools don't have um, teachers who even have access to some of that, and they themselves are struggling. Um, the parents are struggling. So all the people that would actually mentor the children um, are also struggling. And, um, you know, it's an issue uh, when, when a mother is single and she's holding down two jobs, you know, it's, it's going to be very difficult to be able to you know, uh, do that nice cooking and shopping and all the rest of it and also teach the kids at the same time. So, but, you know, that being said, I still have hope that there are simple, very, very simple ways to be able to teach kids. Um, and I saw this when Alice Waters in Berkeley, which is, you know, that's my alma mater. Yes. I was there when she first set up her magnificent um, uh, restaurant and then she went over to um, a beautiful grammar school and set up gardens where they grew. They had the children grow uh, the actual vegetables, fruits, um, and uh, watch the entire cycle of life um, until it was finally cooked right in front of them. Um, and they had a chance to understand the value of all of that. Where else does that take place? Where, where are we seeing this? Um, kids just don't have any of this kind of experience. So many of them, clearly some do, no question. But I would say the mass majority um, go into the cafeteria. Who's running the cafeteria? I've been in a lot of public schools. I used to uh, participate in a mentor program, a principal for a day in New York City. And I went into a lot of schools and I, you know, shocked and not in a good way, the food that they're feeding children, which is one step up from prison food, I was told. And, you know, when a French fry is considered a vegetable, you know, you're in trouble. No question. And, you know, I mean, I could say the same thing about hospital food. Um, you know, it's, it's the same thing, but it's the same companies that make this stuff. So and we're, you know, if we're at, we're up against the the major food manufacturers who are serving polluted, convoluted food, and we're up against, uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies who actually profit off of people being unhealthy. Are, is this a battle collectively even worth fighting? Oh, there's no question. Um, you know, you know me, Beth. I'm an eternal. Um, realistic optimist. Yes. I'm not an optimist. I'm a realistic optimist. And 
as a physician, I will never give up. Um, I, you know, there's always a way to be able to, to make some kind of an inroad here. No question about it. It's the old activist in me. Um, so I would say that, you know, if you could even, you know, work with just one high school, one grammar school and make a difference and maybe have other people see this as a model, that would be phenomenal. You know, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that little, you know, starfish story, as you're well aware, a little boy throwing starfish back into the sea after they've washed ashore. He's trying to save them, but all he could do is one at a time carefully. And an old man comes by and he says, well, that's a waste of time. It's not going to make a difference to everyone. And the little boy picks up one starfish and says, well, it made a difference to this one. And, and that's kind of the way I live. Because, you know, if you look at the enormity of the numbers I just recited to you, and if you you look at, you know, the trending in so many schools right now in terms of lack of education about not just nutrition, but healthy lifestyle, then, you know, you, you sometimes want to just give up. But I would never do that. I just say do what you can within the sphere and the locale of where you live um, and the touch points are able to do just like you did, Beth. Um, and and try to make a difference um, piece by piece. I also, you know, need to say that whenever I talk about nutrition, at, in the same breath, I talk about physical activity. I say them both. Notice I don't say the E word. I don't say exercise. I say physical activity, just getting up and moving um, because you're fueling that. And that, that adds the integrative, holistic balance to how you live. Um, and so I, I like to bring that together. At the same time, you know, clearly what's happened over time in our youth-based, super skinny, um, loving, you know, culture, you know, is a lot of stigma and bias. And eating disorders. Absolutely. Um, within the um, entire, you know, medical profession and within culture per se, there are just stereotypes well, that are con- that are continuously perpetuated. Let's talk. I want to talk about the media, and then after the break, I want to talk about history and then technology. And and Francis will be joining us as well. Um, the media now has made much larger size bodies very apparent, socially acceptable. Uh, do you think that this is giving more people permission to be obese and overweight, or do you think that that's a good thing? Well, first of all, how do you define larger body? So when you think that, you know, typically in the media, you, you see people who were size zero to size two, and maybe if they were having a heavy day, a size four, and they're touting these people as your goals and your uh, models, as it were, um, literally two, um, to be able to aspire to? I don't think so. Um, that That's ridiculous, and we already know that. That may work in the couture industry, and it doesn't even work there because it just fosters more smoking of cigarettes um, as well as- uh, Cocaine. You know, (laughs) drugs as well as starving and eating disorders. So all of that is pretty crazy. What I do see is this, you know, people, women who are um, more average sized, um, if they're like, you know, say 12 
uh, a size 12 or even a 14 or something like that, um, you know, now appearing in all kinds of media. Um, and I, I bring this up with one caveat. This is not about size. This is about health. Right. So if I see someone who is, you know, whatever, you know, like not, not overly obese, you know, say they're an average size, which is what you're seeing out there, size 12, whatever, 14. Um, and, and they say that, you know, they're walking every day and they're trying to, you know, get in that yoga and trying to, you know, do a little weight training, this and that, just to kind of keep up with their health and their well-being, and they're striving to cook their food and do the best they possibly can. So there you have someone who is, you know, striving to be fit um, nutritionally as well as uh, physical activity. Then I see someone who's addressing their health and well-being. If all we're going to talk about is somebody's dress size, then you're missing the point. What I also see happily trending are more women and men who are showing up on all kinds of social media feeds. I know I have a very robust um, social media presence. And what I see are more and more people of all kinds of good size, you know, just great sizes, you know, getting out there and becoming more fit. Um, and, and they're proud of it. And they're doing this in groups and they're um, making this into a community thing. This is all good. But can we just get away from the size thing? With regard to extreme obesity, I, I just don't understand how anybody can see that as healthy. It's not healthy um, because I'm a physician and I already know where this is going to go. And if someone, you know, has a very pretty face um, and uh, she, she's very lovely once she has makeup on and her hair and everything, but she's 100 to 150 pounds over, I already know what's going to happen. And, and it breaks my heart. Um, so I would say that we cast aside all this ridiculous super skinniness, which means nothing to me. Those people are not fit. Those people are not healthy. Nor are people on the other end of the spectrum who are severely obese. Why don't we just look at an average, you know, and in this case, a woman who is trying the best she can to add in physical activity, cooking, and good nutrition as best she can, and then celebrate her instead of these extremes. That sounds great, Pam. Um, when we come back from the break, we're going to continue our talk with Dr. Pam Peake about the obesity crisis in America, being healthy, and speak with author Francis Cuffel. This show is brought to you by YogaFit Training Systems Worldwide, the leader in yoga mind-body education. YogaFit runs conferences, seminars, trainings, and corporate wellness off of yogafit.com. You can visit us there and save 15% on any education by using code VOICE22 at checkout. So visit us online at yogafit.com. Also, we would like to thank our sponsor, globalhealing.com, the Global Healing Center, the leader in organic natural supplements. I take all of their products. In fact, I am on their parasite cleanse right now, 
having completed their liver cleanse last month after doing dry January. I've toured their factory. Their supplements are first rate. I know the owners of the company and they're very ethical people. So please visit globalhealing.com and you can save 20% at checkout by using the code YOGAFIT. Thank you so much to our sponsors. And we are back asking the question, what is going on? Pam, I'm going to ask you, if we look back historically, as far back as we can, and I know you're a bit of a historian, have we ever seen this in other cultures, other societies, and has it turned around? So I assume the it is the obesity um, issue. The health crisis, let's just say that. Well, I mean, it's much bigger. I mean, we're jumping from obesity to health in general. Um, when we look at the whole issue of health, I, lo- I like to look at mind-body health um, because that's really the more holistic way to look at this. So, you know, if we're attending to our mind, it makes it a lot easier to attend to our bodies. And, and vice I'm versa. A, yeah, I'm, I'm an, at, well, yeah. It, but the thing is, what I found when I wrote my very first book, which was you know 22 years ago, um, I found that there's no question that if you get your head on straight about taking small, meaningful steps and making them work, then you can do those. But what happens is if all you want to do is look at your body like a science fair project, and not really be fully, deeply, mentally, mindfully engaged in what you're doing here, I don't think you're going to get very far. So it's a mind-body situation. I'm a huge meditator. I absolutely believe in meditation, journaling, all of that self-reflection, because it, it helps you stay anchored and centered so that you don't get carried away with crazy expectations, goals, objectives that make no sense because any meaningful change takes place in small steps that stick, that become a strong foundation to build even more strong steps and then taking it further. The people I've worked with who've done really well and the changes have stuck have done it in small, meaningful steps and never bought into some crazy idea of it's all going to be okay, that my life is going to be okay. You know, if I just sort of, you know, uh, go pretty quickly here, grab the, you know, uh, nearest fad and all the rest of it. And in, by the way, if your mind is engaged appropriately all the way through, then you won't fall for the fallacy that once I've dropped X number of pounds, life is going to be great. No, life is still there waiting for you. Uh It's just that you hopefully will be in better mind-body shape to cope and to become resilient and not fall down with the very first challenge and then default back to old habits. So it takes a long time to cement these habits in. So in your book, The Hunger Fix, you really talk about food as an addiction. Would you uh, say that the food addiction is a bigger addiction these days than uh, let's say an alcohol or a drug addiction? It is much more ubiquitous because everyone's got to eat. Not everyone has to do drugs or smoke. That's another addiction. 
Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, what we found, and this was a, a whole host of researchers in the field, in addition to myself, what we actually found was that the foods, and I call these the ultra processed foods. Um, these are foods that I wouldn't even call them food. They're science fair projects. And they're meant to be able to, in vulnerable brains, and these are people especially who have addictive tendencies genetically and otherwise, in vulnerable brains to trick off the reward center of the brain and, and kick it off into a, an uber state of, uh, of pleasure <clears throat> related to um, you know, whatever that, that food product was. So if it was, you know, some kind of a snack item or you know, sugar things, you know, it's basically ultra processed, both fat and um, actually it's fat, sugar, and salt. Um, so all three of those together are just absolutely lethal. Um, and this is one of the reasons why it's so terribly important to try to control what you're putting in your mouth, cook, know what you're putting in your mouth. Um, and so when people grab these very convenient grab and go products, then what happens is their brain gets very, very used to that. They, get, they become adapted. And then suddenly, just like in general addiction, they need more and more and more of it to be able to hit anything that even comes close to a feeling of satisfaction and pleasure until really there's just like in drugs, there's no more pleasure left. There's only so many ho-hos you can eat. There's only, you know, and, and you just keep doing it, but the pleasure is no longer there because you've, you've now developed just like in drugs tolerance. Makes perfect sense. Thanks, Pam. Uh, we're going to bring on now to join you our guest, Frances Cuffel, who uh, I love her books. In fact, uh, her second book, Eating Ice Cream with My Dog, really got into the depth of food addiction. It was actually a very painful read. Um, and of course, uh, her first book, Passing is Thin, which she lost a hundred or half of her body weight. Um, uh, Frances, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. So, Francis, uh, how's everything going? Well, um, my new obsession is the gym. Okay, that's that's good news. <laughs> What's happening in the Ukraine and the gym. Um, and I'm working with my brother and training with my brother, who's who used to be a triathlete. And he's been through so many injuries that he has this host of... Um, uh, you know, physical therapy sponsored exercises that are good for both of us. And um, what I would say to people and what I have said to people about going to the gym is that it's instant medicine. Yeah. I've been working out since age 15 and the days that I don't go, I I'm an exercise addict, I guess, because I, spend a lot of my day thinking about why I didn't go to the gym and looking forward to going at some point. Uh, your first book, you talk about your experience at what was at age 40, losing half of your body weight. What did you weigh? What did you get down to? What was the process by which you did it? And then tell us the subsequent story. Um, I started at 338 pounds 
I ended at about 155 pounds. Um, that number could move up and down a little bit. Um, I was still fertile then, so <laughs> I had hormones to blame, I guess. Um, but it never moved more than three pounds up or down. I um, relate because every time I have PMS, I swear I, I must gain like six pounds and then I spend the next 10 days knocking it back off and then it's cycle starts right back up again. I get it. Well, one of the things that I did learn from Pam was to just ignore the scale, which I didn't do. Um, and I'll explain that in a moment, but, but to rely on my clothes, do my clothes fit? Are they getting loose? Are they, you know, wh where am I with my clothes? Um, and I wish I had had more leeway with that when I was at that weight. I lost the weight through a 12-step program. Uh, and I think I'll be going back to that 12-step program because being able to talk with people who've been what you've been through, who can even laugh at what you've been through, um, and having that sense of responsibility to a sponsor to be truthful is absolutely freeing so would you consider yourself francis a food addict i do yes okay and so you know your second book like i said it was it was it was i loved the book but it was a very difficult read to really get into the depth of food addiction and hear how you know eat, you ate a, a sheet cake underneath your Sheets, uh, you know, it was very intense. Um, well, yes, it is. And I had to, that was just at the time when we were beginning to see how food affected the brain in the same way that cocaine does. Um, we had not before that really had that information. And I remember showing people the, the research and the, the brain scans and they were shocked and disbelieving in many ways because, you know, addiction is supposed to change you. And um, food addiction doesn't necessarily change you or you've had it for so long that that's the personality people know so they don't see the change. Well, I'll tell a story. Uh, my parents divorced when I was around 13 years old and my mother was off on, you know, a, a maraud of dates and would then like buy me a bunch of food, um, some of which wasn't that healthy and food became my comfort. And so I see how, you know, fortunately I did not become a food addict, but I see how that the food is comfort thing in, in a developing brain can really anchor it in and then become your go-to, your default. Uh, at what age do you feel like you became a food addict and why? Um, when I look back at pictures, I'm a chubby baby. And then I was a stringy, tall uh, toddler. And around the time that I think well, around the time that my, my brother molested me, I, I began to put on weight permanently. As just a defense? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's a very unfortunate common story that happens to a, a lot of women, whether it becomes alcoholism or, or anything else. I think you'll find that a lot of female uh, food addicts 
have that experience. And yeah, probably a lot of people with eating disorders as well. Right. Um, you know, when you're four years old, like I was, I it didn't occur to me to go to the liquor cabinet and I would have hated what was in it anyway. And I couldn't go out and buy marijuana or something. I was four and didn't even know about those things, but there was food there. It was. And, um, it was my best friend. And at what age did you decide to start to try to turn that around? Well, I had gone through several diets, but the one that stuck was was being in the rooms and turning over my food every day and going to meetings and making phone calls and hearing people's stories and watching success right in front of me. You know, it was wonderful when, oh, a woman I didn't like much, but she lost just enough weight to get off of insulin and that was very meaningful to me you know I didn't necessarily like everyone in the rooms some people I adored um the composition of the rooms changed but there was always that striving for success striving for different kinds of successes um you know some people were had gotten thin and now they were focusing on their career and you know, trying to take that thin body into a new situation. Um, and there was a chance to grow up in the rooms. So you obviously saw a lot of success stories in front of you as well. Yes. That were encouraging, uplifting, and inspirational. Yeah. And I was one of them for a while. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask like where you're at with your weight now, but where are you at with your health right now? And how do you feel about that? Um, I think that, that one of the misnomers is that the super obese, you don't know where they are. You wouldn't look at me and think, oh, she's spending six or eight hours a week at the gym. Um, and I think one of the most helpful things that a person can do who's in my situation is to pretend to be thin, to do the things that thin people do, to, you know, put on earrings every day and, and uh, run errands every day and, you know, park out in the parking lot as far away from the store as you can. And, um, but I also think that there are physical disabilities for people my weight that need to be addressed before they can do certain things. For me, it's my back. I have, a, I have real back problems. And while my brother is away, I'm going to be going to physical therapy at the gym to try to get some exercises to strengthen my back. Yeah, I would recommend some yoga exercises for you for sure. But I'm, I'm sure you have my book, Yoga Lean. Uh, but if, if not, I'll send you another copy. Um, so Pam, what are your thoughts on inspirational role models? And how do we reach more people who are, were or maybe are in Francis's position who are suffering? Well, first of all, you need people who get it. And I would say that there's a still a significant struggle 
within um, the healing arts for people to uh, address these very unique needs. Um, this is not taught well within the healing arts. So I'm not just saying physicians, it's everybody. And I think that there's still inherent bias and discrimination that exists that makes it even more difficult um, for people to actually seek help. Certainly once they become a hundred pounds overweight um, uh, and, and they become quite obese, I, I think that it's just very, very difficult. Um, so you need to have more people who are supposed to be doing the helping, you know, trained appropriately. It's sort of what we say also, you know, ironically, and if you look at a woman's health situation, um, the time between perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, do you know to today, menopause, as it were, is still not taught very well to medical practitioners at all. And there's only one society, the North American Menopause Society, that even has a certification in that. So when you say the same thing there, you know, who's going to help these women as they're coursing through? Well, where's the army? You know, wh where are these people who are trained to be able to do this well? So I think that, you know, there's a lot of movement afoot to really begin to look at this issue of obesity and super obesity um, as a medical condition that, you know, requires the same kind of multi-level care um, and handling and management as anything else would. And I'm going to probably piss you off right now, but I don't necessarily know that it should be only medical professionals that are oh, no, dispensing no, not, this information. Yeah, um. I, I absolutely <laughs> agree. I'm, I'm only bringing that up because I am within the medical profession and everyone would point to them. And well, say, I look at a lot of nurses that are like not looking very healthy, you know? Well, so. no, that's, that's the whole point. The whole point is the education of this entire, you know, army has to be one where if you're going to be in the healing arts at any level, you have to walk the talk. You have to be, you know, going out of your way to eat nutritious food. You have to be physically active. You have to be in touch with yourself, with self-reflection, and you have to use every tool you have in your toolbox. Yoga is obviously a huge piece of this. There's no question about that. Um, all the fitness professionals are huge, you know, in this as well. But it'd be really nice if we had more of an organized, concerted effort instead of what appears to be kind of piecemeal um, and disorganized. It'd be nice to see more and more people from all kinds of backgrounds rise up and help each other. You see this within churches. You see this within community groups, and that makes me as happy as I can be because there you have huge diversity, um, and and people are all supporting one another, um, and you have to have that support to be able to get anywhere. Well, and speaking of churches, you know, really our body is our temple. We live in it 24-7, and you're in this one body until you're not on this planet anymore. So I, I would love to see churches kind of more emphasize care of the body temple. Well, there's no question about that. 
and um, I think some are really striving to do that as best they can. Again, going back to such simple basics, which is whole foods um, and, and just throw away all that other stuff and, and really sit down and try to eat more simply. Now I say that, and then people walk outside and they smell what's coming out of some, you know, fast food place, or they go to a mall or they go somewhere. Or they turn on the TV and then they're bombarded with commercials from McDonald's, Pizza Hut and Domino's. Oh, all you have to do is pick up a phone to Uber, uh, excuse me, to Uber Eats and and you've got food at the front door, you don't even have to move. Yeah. They've made it so simple. And so what you find is that the more mentally rooted you are, the better you will be in terms of shape to be able to fend off these kinds of temptations. And that's why I say it's so important to have a real strong mental attitude wrapped around this and then get yourself a support squad. I don't care if it's just your dog, your cat, and two best friends. I mean, that's fine with me. I, I'm not talking about hordes at the door, but just some some kind of system, a support system that works for you. It's very difficult to do this alone. We're going to be opening up the phone lines to callers who have questions for Dr. Pam Peek or Francis Cuffel. Please call in at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141 and ask our experts some questions. Ladies, let's talk about discipline. Uh, I I spent a lot of time thinking about discipline. Is it inherent within certain individuals and not with others? Is it something that can be trained or taught? Is it just completely lacking in our society today? What are your thoughts? Well, I'll answer. I may not have discipline with food, but I have discipline with other things. Um, so I don't think that discipline is, is uh, I think it depends on how tr- attractive it is to the individual. Thanks, Francis. Pam? Discipline is a moot point in the face of addiction. What you need is structure and you need a foundation. Um, you know, I hate that word discipline when it comes to that because it's very judgy too. Um, it, it, it's sort of like, why don't you have more discipline? And, and that's one of the things you, you hear so often in the, in the bias and judgment, you know, arena when it comes to this instead, how about we set up a structure and a context for these people to be able to do what they need to do. Um, and by doing that, you know, you've got that support system and all the rest of it. And also go deeply with that person and find out what's meaningful and purpose purposeful for them. So where you have passion, discipline is a complete moot point. Hey, that's a very interesting viewpoint, Pam. Thank you. We've got a caller from Salt Lake City, Utah. Michelle, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Hi there. Hi, uh, Michelle. Do you have a question? I do. Yes. Um, very inspiring topic today. You know, I, I have a, I'm one of 26 grandchildren born and raised in Utah. And, you know, this touches on so many topics about cultural shifting, accepting of, of weight. And it's interesting because where I live, it seems like there's the half of the culture is like separate wives, perfectionists, you know, all in trying to be perfect. And then the other half, 
that I love, actually family members and dear childhood friends, there's like this unsaid rebellion to society, like living from the neck up. I don't care. It doesn't matter. And I guess my question is, you know, how do you talk to your loved ones that you care about, about the long-term effects where it's such a cultural accepted norm? And it's also such a sensitive topic when you talk to someone you love that's struggling, you know, with weight, even if they're not hugely obese, it's so sensitive. So how do you bring up that conversation? It's a really, really good question, um, and I, I thank you so much for bringing this up because it's one I hear all the time, and I always lead with the word health, and I leave weight out of it, um, you know, and and I also believe that if you're going to make a change, you be the change you're asking for, meaning that are you helping and supporting by your own lifestyle um, such that someone would say, I want to have something, I, I want to have what she has to a certain degree, because you're able to, you know, feel better. And you say that, you know, you are healthy. Um, and it's really important to lead with health and well-being. Like, I love you and I want you around forever because I'm just a selfish person. And so how about you and I um, just take a really nice walk? Let's let's do that more often. You know, I get really lonely out there. And, and a lot of this is sort of stealthful conversations as well. And absolutely eliminating anything that, that sounds like it's policing um, or is judging absolutely out of the question because that, that will never work. Instead, lead with compassion, empathy, mentorship, you know, walk the talk and, and say that you love them and that you want them and you to be healthy together. Hmm. That is very helpful. Thank you very much. I'd also that most people know they're overweight, that they're obese or super obese, and they're fully aware of the consequences and still can't stop. No fat person has ever, you know, walked into her closet and tried to squeeze herself into a size six bikini or something. Thanks, Francis. Thank you. Well, thank you to our caller. That was a great question. Uh, so, you know, we have support groups at Yoga Fit. We have our Yoga Lean continuity groups. People have access to the classes, to our base camp with guest presenters and uh, lectures. And interestingly enough, you know, we have about 50 people at a time sign up and, and there always ends up with just like one core group of maybe 10, 12 people who really stick with it. Uh, Francis, I know you wrote so much in your second book about the diet um, diet industry and, and how many billions of dollars are spent on failed diets. Do you have any advice for people who are looking at some fad diet or uh, gastric bypass or stomach stapling or whatever the newest medical procedure is? Any advice for them? Well, as far as uh, gastric bypass, you have to look very carefully at um, at the outcome. A lot of gastric bypass patients become alcoholics. <laughs> you know, pain, weight is pain. It's emotional pain. And um, in many cases, at least I'll, I'll, I'll add that caveat. Um, so 
someone with a gastric bypass is going to find another way to address that pain. Um, fad diets are just stupid. The only way to lose weight is whole food. And, um, and lifestyle changes. And lifestyle changes. But I, I'm talking about, you know, fad diets right now where they don't address exercise or movement or, or, you know, meditation, journaling, all the things that make us sane. Um, and anybody should be able to spot. I mean, use your common sense. That's what I would say. And then go buy a head of romaine and chop it up with tomatoes and carrots and put on a chicken breast and, and have your dinner. But, you know, the idea that eating half a grapefruit for two meals a day is going to sustain weight loss or result in a sustained weight loss is ridiculous. Thanks, Francis. Uh, ladies, as we move towards wrapping this, any final pearls of wisdom for our listeners? I'd like to say that that uh, being overweight or being obese is not your is is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. I love that. Thank you, Francis. Pam, the trending um, within. Uh, the medical uh, sector, as well as just the healing arts per se, is toward empathy and compassion, which is wonderful um, in, as it relates to this entire thing. And that uh, we are now developing better ways to be able to um, care for people who are seeking help. And I think that that is a wonderful trend, especially in the face of what's happening right now. The trends, uh, you know, in society are pushing toward almost half of the adult population being obese. So we need all the tools in our toolbox that we can get, period, end of story, and, and really keep caring for um, the individual with empathy and compassion front and center. Wonderful. Um, thank you, ladies, so much. This has been such a great show. This is a topic I feel like we could spend four hours on, so I'm going to be asking you both to come back at some point. Uh, if you have questions for today's show, you can message me off of bethshaw.com. Also visit me on Instagram at bethshawmindbody. Please check out our guests' books. They are all excellent. Dr. Pam Peak and Francis Couple with a K. Uh, check out all their social media tags in our show notes. If you're interested in our Yoga Lean weight loss and transformation groups or continuity programs, you can visit us online at yogafit.com or email events at yogafit.com for more information. I'd like to thank our guests again for being here. Thank you to our sponsors, globalhealing.com and to Yogafit. We will look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until that time, stay healthy, keep moving, keep eating healthy foods, keep a positive attitude, write in your food journal, and do some meditation. Until next time, everyone, namaste, and thank you so much. Let's make America healthy together. We can do this because we have to. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us on Make America Healthy. We hope we've given you some tools you need to take back control of your health. Until next time, we wish you a healthy and wonderful week.